All right. Well, let's kind of pick up where we left off, and we'll we'll get going. Let's uh, pray. And uh, we're in First Timothy chapter three. Let's just read the text, and then we'll pray. And starting in verse fourteen, Paul here talking about the mystery of godliness, and of course being highlighted as I've, I've, I've uh, pointed out. Thank you, hon, several times already that uh, this passage is uh, is about us manifesting Christ just like Jesus of course was God manifest in the flesh the pastors the deacons deacons wives pastors wives are supposed to manifest the light of Christ so people know who Jesus is but this particular um, session is not about the pastors and the deacons it's um it's about the uh, it's it's about the glory of godliness, not just reflecting the characteristics of the office of a, of a pastor or a bishop, or the officers uh, of a deacon or their wives, uh, but it is about the reflecting the character of the congregation. So our congregation should reflect the character of Christ. So let's uh, look at the text and then we'll pray. And uh, it's again an appropriate day, I think, for us to touch on this. So God's just doing a good job. So these things right unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Um, but I t- if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the um, Gentiles believed on in the world and received up into glory. And that closes the loop from verse uh, 5 of chapter 2, where Paul says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, which was in reference to the prayer, right? Praying for kings and all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So, so that that led to him talking about in verse 5 one mediator between uh one mediator <clears throat> or there's there's one god i should say one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus making jesus equal with god our advocate propitiation brings us all the way back around to verse 16 in chapter 3 and how he was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit uh seen of angels preached on unto the gentiles believed on in the world and received up in the glory so Jesus is God, no doubt about it. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that Jesus is God. We're thankful that, um, Lord, that you called us to enter into the, the priesthood of believers. Lord, when we get saved, we become saints. I was just talking to the husband of the young lady that got saved today, and he was asking me about my usage of the word saint. Uh, Lord, I, I forget that people don't know, uh, Lord, that we're not talking about statues and um, and the veneration of saints and all of that sometimes. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that you choose your words carefully. And, uh, Lord, that we know what they are, what they mean, and, and what they mean to us. And what they mean not to us only, but through us. As, uh, Lord, you wash us in the water of the Word, the bride of Christ. And, and Lord, we become more like you uh, in our in our need to advocate, Lord, and pray. As we left off talking this morning about praying without ceasing, Lord, uh, always. And, and, and it's so important that we are praying. Uh, Lord, and we are praying people. This is our church tonight, and we're praying. Lord, that's why we're here. And I pray, God, that you would use it in uh, in a way that would be above and beyond what we ask or think. We just praise you for this season of prayer, and we ask that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, so the glory of godliness reflected in the office and the officers and also now in the character of the congregation. Last week we, we saw under point A a fervent anticipation uh, and a personal letter of anticipation. And so we talked about that. 
and I'm not going to re-preach all that, but, uh, you know, Paul was was talking, I write these things under the hoping to come under these shortly. So there was a, a pers- it was a personal letter he was writing to them. Obviously, you know the situation in which Paul was writing from. It was not the ideal situation uh, for him, but his heart was open and he was sending this to his son, the Lord Timothy. Uh, then he was also making a connection, making the connection. And specifically, uh, Paul is depending on, on Timothy and the church uh, to forward the mission, right? As uh, uh, we ended up talking last week about the being addicted to the ministry, right? And and so uh, and so that's so important. We don't want to have spiritual uh, heart disease. And so that left us with point B, where we are tonight. Faithful operation, verse fifteen. So he comes down. He says, "But if I tarry long, thou mayest know that thou how uh, how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church." of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so, uh, the faithful operation. So, fervent anticipation should produce faithful operation. And so, knowing that the Lord is coming, right? And he says, if I tarry long, don't change your behavior. Continue to behave well. But if I tarry long, that thou knowest how, uh, that thou, I'm sorry, mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So, first let's talk about, but if I tarry long, at a time when uh, the imminent return of our Lord Jesus Christ is more obvious than ever. And I think Jeff asked, we talked, had a little dialogue about that last week, about the imminent return. Many will doubt the promise of His coming and their personal accountability in that day. So we know Jesus is coming, but the longer He tarries, you know, it's kind of easier to say, well, maybe not. You know, maybe not. And then people get a little lazy, kind of get a little apathetic. Right? Again, getting back to Judges, I mentioned that this morning. And we can't have that. So, it's interesting that uh, one of the passages that God used in my life to really encourage me um, is the is the companion of uh, what we've been talking about on Sunday morning. In First Second uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, you guys, that's not the reference. The reference is in your sheet there. It says that God is not willing that any should, uh, should perish, but that all should come to repentance, right? So, um, I've preached that a lot, like at City Union Mission. I would preach that and preach that and preach that. Especially as a young Christian, I really, I really didn't look at sadly the context because it was a convenient verse, you know. And I just kept preaching it and preaching it. And one day, I'm in my daily reading, you know, devotional reading. One morning, reading, I'm like, oh, Second Peter chapter three. Let me read this, you know, from beginning to end. And then I was like, whoa, this is like, this is about wrath, <laughs> you know. And uh, it really helped me highlight the need for verse nine. You know, I was like, wow. God is really showing me here that, you know, he is long-suffering. Like, he's stuck this verse right in the middle of his wrath. And it really encouraged my heart. So, uh, Peter, uh, in Second Peter 3, says in verse 3, Knowing this verse, and I gave you the verses since we don't have PowerPoint, there shall uh, come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. And we could do another Bible study just about verse 5, but I'm not going to get into that tonight. But the, the point here is that you know when I read in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul obviously, historically, is talking about, If I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. He's not talking about, he's not putting himself in the place of Christ. Um, he is not saying that. He's saying, if I'm not able to get there in time, you know, make sure things stay in order. That's obviously what Paul's talking about historically. 
physically. We understand that. But we also know doctrinally Jesus is promising to come. And if you, and, and, and it's not a stretch. When you read Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3 through 5, which is certainly prophetic and telling us that dealing with the, the time of the Lord's return, that there are people that will continue and it will increase, that people will scoff, right? And the longer, the further away we get from the resurrection, the more people are going to say, ah, the imminent return of the Lord is not going to come, right? Now, that was something, a concern for both Paul and Peter in the first century, right? He had to write to the Thessalonians about this very subject, and, uh, and Peter is mentioning it here. Uh, because uh, it was already an issue in the first century. So now, uh, you know, we're uh, many centuries beyond that. <laughs> so so we're going to get the same thing. So it's no surprise then, you know, that you got uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, and uh, all these people that are, you know, blowhards, you know, beating up on Ken Ham uh, and all of that, because they don't believe in the Bible. That's what it really boils down to. And uh, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were. Now Peter's talking about the Old Testament fathers um, and uh, in the Old Testament. And nothing's changed since the Old Testament. It's just the way it's always been. And I grew up hearing that kind of that kind of thing. They've been saying that, that, that Jesus is coming my whole life. Anybody hear people tell you that? Yeah, yeah Ron, you heard that? So I heard a steady diet of a bunch of things negative against the Word of God in the church as I was coming up as a kid. And, uh, and uh, that was one of them. They've been saying the world's coming to an end my whole life. You know, I get that. If you lived through World War II and you saw Hitler, uh, you might think the world's coming to an end. You know, um, you get the atom bomb going. I remember being in the 80s, you know, when we were kids, they scared scared you to death with the day after. You know, Lawrence, Kansas gets blow, the, the bomb comes and blows up Kansas City. You know, you're a little kid watching that stuff going, man, I think it's coming, you know. But, uh, you know, I could get I could get jaded and say, "Well, they've been talking about that my whole life." But you know what? It's nearer than when I believed. All right. So we have to really remember the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd come at any moment, and so, and we're promised that. And so, uh, Bible believing Christians should not be in the number that misbehave uh, if the Lord tarries His coming, because uh, you can remember what. Saul, the type the Antichrist did, while well, he waited for the prophet Samuel in First Samuel fifteen twenty two, right? Huh? Right. He just started doing his own thing, didn't he? He's like, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I want to do. First Samuel 15:22, and Samuel said, "Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams." So, you have here Samuel uh, doing what he wants to do. Or not Samuel, Saul doing what he wants to do. And Samuel calls him out and says, Hey, Saul, you were supposed to wait till I got here. And, uh, you know, is that the... What do I hear in my ears right now? So did you... So, uh, you know, he's he's uh, trying to justify his bad behavior. So when King David had idle time on his hands, uh, he didn't go to battle. And we know what happened to him, right? He didn't behave himself appropriately with Bathsheba. And so idle time, what is that, idle hands or the devil's, there used to be a saying about that. Yeah, the devil's workshop, yeah. 
So it's important that we pay attention to the things that we saw in chapters 2 and 3, which you've slept since then, and the Word of God in general, and measure ourselves by the stature of the fullness of Christ, which gets us back to the mystery of godliness. And so that's our standard. The house of God is referring to the body of Christ. Paul would write to the church and remind them of that principle in Ephesians 2.21, in whom are all the building fitly framed together and groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So the holy temple is the Lord's. We are uh, we are like a building, and we are also the, its habitation. So we are the place where the Spirit of God dwells. So we carry uh, that glory uh, in the body of Christ. So this first mention of the house of God is found in Genesis 28. Jacob is sleeping upon a rock uh, in what would become Bethel, which means house of God. And he declares the Lord was dwelling there, and he didn't know it. He didn't have a clue. And how common that is for the saints. It's so easy to think that we just come to church and, well, there's Bob and there's Sharon and there's the Davises and there's Jeff and there's Amy and Elizabeth and Ron and it's just all the people we know and we like and we go to church with. But we're not just a like a country club. We're not we're not even a, just friends, although that's great, right? I mean, there's more, a lot more going on. We are the household of faith. We are the house of God. God dwells in us, right? Individually and collectively, we represent Him, and so that's why the mystery of godliness is reflected in the uh, character of the congregation, because Christ is in us. And so people may call you a character, but by God's grace, that character is the character of Christ. So in the first mention of the house there, we saw that. Genesis 28.16, I gave you that verse. And Jacob awakened up his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, How dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. And beloved, I mean, we come to the house of God, and we're all happy as, as can be, but when somebody's not right with the Lord... They could be. They feel just like Jacob. They're like, "Whoa, I've entered some place here. What is going on?" Before my sister got saved, she used to cry when she went to the to the church. It just freaked her out because the spirit of God was convicting her of sin. She didn't even have to hear the message. She just got convicted. Isn't that crazy? And uh, that I, I always remember that. I'm like, "Wow, that is that is wild." And so I remember when I was lost, I would go to the house of God. And it wasn't even really strong preaching. It was actually pretty poor preaching, to be frank with you. But um, I would get so convicted, I eventually quit going in the sanctuary. And I just, and I eventually quit going altogether. But when my aunt would take me, and at first I kind of went along, and it was good. And then as my heart got harder, right, I didn't want to be in there. I wanted to, so I just stood outside the door. And I eventually just skipped the church, and then I quit coming until I got saved. And so, um, God, you know, God will chase you down and get you saved. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And uh, God's alive, and He's in His church. And when Jacob realized he's in the presence of the Lord, he was scared. It shook him up a little bit. And so, the last mention of the house of God is sobering. In First Peter four seventeen, the Bible says, "For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God." And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? How about that for some preaching in the 21st century, huh? You ain't going to hear that at Joel Osteen's church, I promise you that. <laughs> so uh, so that's, that's what the Bible says. So just in case we miss it, Paul defines the house of God. Now this is Paul, New Testament, 1 Timothy 3.15. It is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. 
Right? So we're not confusing that with any other house of God. We're talking about the church. And we're not talking about a building. Right? It's not the building. It's the people that, that contain the, the, the body of believers. So point two there. Um, I'm not following in your notes, so let me get in touch, make sure I have... So we're only to the church. Well, that was a lot in that little bitty space, wasn't it? So, <laughs> so the church of the living God uh, denotes uh, God's ownership. So he can walk in and eat the showbread at any time he wants because he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, only three mentions of the house of God in the Gospels and all refer to this incident. Isn't that interesting? So uh, when you go through the Gospels, every one of the mentions of house of God is going to denote this story of how, um, you know, uh, G- uh, how uh, the, the, he, the Jesus can walk in the, and eat the showbread, or that Jesus, but David, Jesus mentions how David was able to go and eat the showbread. And, uh, and so Jesus owns the, the house of God. It's ownership is the blank there. Point three, the church of the living God denotes eternal life. This is the same God that died and rose again. So he is an uh, all man, all God from his incarnation to his resurrection. Right, so the Church of the Living God, Living God is in, is in quotes there, denotes eternal life. Right, He's eternal. He's not just like a temporary God. He wasn't, you know, partly God. He's all God, all man. And uh, I was listening to David Crowder sing last night. I can't remember the song, but he talking about all these attributes of Jesus. He's a Father. He's a Savior. And he's he's going through all these attributes. And I was just kind of running through all these, listening to the like the doctrinal significance of all those titles. And I was thinking, man, he is all that. It's amazing how Jesus is all that. He's all God. He's all man. And so, uh, I and the Father are one, he said, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, he's, he's, these three are one. So, um, the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Right? And you guys know that's right there in the text. The church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So, um, so the pillar, which of course is a support, and the ground is a stay, um, or the basis of truth. And so first mention of pillar in the Bible is Genesis 19.26. And we know there that Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt. right? And so the last mention of pillar in the Bible is Revelation 3.12, speaking to the church of brotherly love, uh, speaking of those things uh, who hold tightly to the truth of God's word, though they have little strength. And so uh, until the Lord returns, they'll receive a great reward to be a pillar of in the temple, of course, that's in heaven, of God. Not just eternal security, but eternal purpose in worship of God. So it's one thing to be secure, like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to heaven, I have Jesus in my heart. But there's actually eternal purpose, right, in being a, a pillar, being steadfast in the faith, understanding that there's more going on than even in time. God has a purpose for us in all of eternity. So the church of the living God is the pillar and the ground of truth. So we're going to stand uh, with our Savior uh, our husband, to use another word, we're going to stand with him, not just uh, in time, but for all of eternity as an example. We are a pillar. We're steadfast. We're not going anywhere. Pillar and ground of the truth. He has grounded us. He has settled us. He has made us his household. It's amazing uh, how the mystery of godliness is intertwined now with the character of the congregation and the church and the household of faith. These are these are kind of deep things to meditate upon. And uh, spiritual leaders are also likened to pillars. You hear us say that from time to time. Or supports for the church. I envision uh, a home being supported by pillars along the seacoast, right? You guys just came back from Gulf Shores and, you know, the, a lot of times those they'll have a big... 
uh, pillars. Uh, they're made out of wood, typically, but they're all drilled down. The house may be elevated 12 foot or more off the ground and above the whatever they think the rising tide will be, but the house stays with the pillars no matter what comes in underneath it because they're fo- those pillars are driven way down deep. And so uh, pillars are a great support for the church, the household of faith. And, uh, and so Paul said of Peter and James and John, they seem to be pillars. Right? That's what he said in Galatians 2.9. And when uh, James, Cephas, and John, uh, Cephas being Peter, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave unto me the, and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship that we should go unto the heathen, and that uh, they under the circumcision. So what's he really saying? These men, Peter, James, and John, they were the, they were the inner three. I mean, a lot of things rested on those three men. They were pillars for the church and the faith in that first century, and even to this day. And so the church is the pillar, the support of the truth. The goddess Artemis, or Diana, of Ephesus was counted as the mother of all living. Uh, That pagan deity... uh, Man, I just heard somebody recently, they went right back to that, and it's a new version. I can't remember what it was. I just informed somebody, that is this ancient Babylonian religion with a new manifestation. I wish I could remember it now. It was some con- uh, some new religion. Oh, it was Pastor Rajan. He was telling me about a new uh, sect that's popped up in Nepal. And uh, and uh, as he was explaining it, I'm like, ah, oh, Mystery Babylon religion, you know? And so we had a conversation about the female deity and the whole thing all over again. Um, and it's uh, But it's within uh, the ranks of the evangelicals. And so it perverts the church as the mother of all living and Jerusalem above and all these other things that are Bible verses but then they twist it, they wrestle the scripture, and it ends up right back at Mystery Babylon Religion. It's the same thing, different day. It's amazing and sad and uh, wicked. And so, anyway, that's a little off note. Let me stay on track here so we can get somewhere. So, um, Galatians 2.9, when, when they seem to be the pillars of the church. So the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. And so, uh, though that getting back to Diana of Ephesus, that goddess of the Babylonians and also named Ishtar, though she had a temple that is counted as one of the seven wonders of the world, she uh, she may uh, she had many other temples and statues and was believed to be anywhere there was life. So people in the in the Roman world believed that if there was life, that this goddess had something to do with it, right? We call it today, you know, if you're watching Parquet, Mother Nature, right? Some of you are old enough to remember that, Mother Nature. And, uh, like, you know, she's everywhere. And, uh, and so uh, Paul is making a point here of replacing Diana with the Bride of Christ, the pillar and the ground of truth, which, of course, you know, at Ephesus they had a riot over. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the life of the world. And, it's not, and, and uh, it's not going to know that unless we promote the glorious gospel. The world's not going to know about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. They are absolutely blind to the gospel. Satan has blinded the minds of them, which should believe, right? Lest they see the light of the gospel. So they're not going to know. They're going to thank Mother Nature. Is the, they're going to worship the earth. So you see this big movement going into the last days before the imminent return of Christ. There's no wonder they're supporting. They're, everybody's loving Mother Earth. That's what lost people do, right? And so we're the pillar in the ground of truth. The female deity, uh, well, there isn't one, but we are the bride of Christ. And so uh, we need to know how to behave ourselves in the household of God because if there's anything feminine uh, related to the Godhead, 
Well, it's going to be Jesus' bride, the bride of Christ. And, of course, also uh, Israel in relationship to the Father. But but you understand what I'm saying. That there's no room for Mother Nature, so to speak. God is the God of nature, and He's the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is that God. So Paul is making that point here. And it's not an accident that when Paul entered Ephesus, there was trouble because of the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ, because it threatened the female deity, uh, just like it would a Wiccan. Right? It's hard for a Wiccan to see Jesus Christ as God. A Wiccan will talk to you about Jesus. I've talked to Wiccans about Jesus. They, they're all about Jesus. They're, they'll be happy to talk to you about Jesus. But Jesus is a God. He's not the God. A Hindu, happy to talk about Jesus. But to a Hindu, Jesus is a God. He's not the God. And once you put Jesus in his rightful place of authority... He happens to be male, and that whole picture's in all of our creation. Then everything uh, snaps into place, and then you get the you get the backlash. Uh, and so, um, so the church is the ground of truth. The word ground here is the same as stay. So when I worked, I used to work for a cable company many years ago. And uh, uh, when I was drawing up my drawings, I would draw these little things on the drawings, and I would tell them where to place anchors. And anchors basically are stays, right? So when you put your strand lines up, you had to you had to make sure that you could anchor off the the pole. Otherwise, the, when you tightened up that strand, it pulled the pole over. You've probably seen that happen before when they don't have anchors. And what those anchors do is they put them in the ground and they put a wire, or a, they put a cable to it, right? They tighten that thing up, and it goes it pulls against uh, that that tension that's in the strand lines that hold those that holds whatever wires going on, whether it's cable or anything else. And so you got to have those anchors. Those are the stay. Those are the grounds. They go in the ground typically and so that thing will stay and so we're grounded we are the pillar and ground of the truth and uh and so that's important that we continue we add the tension and here in this in this in our context um you know we are salt and light and we add tension to the culture by our very presence just the fact that we won't move puts tension in the air sometimes that's kind of what i was talking about this morning a little bit you know there's some tension in the air at times why because we don't move Jesus is God. Now we love, we do what he tells us to do, but sometimes being unmovable is is annoying to people because we just won't budge. Uh, and we add tension to the culture by our presence. Paul points that out in chapters 2 and 3. We're here to make a difference in our community. Now we're not trying to intentionally make people angry, uh, but it happens. You know, sometimes Matthew five thirteen says, "Ye are the salt of the earth, but the salt have lost his savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are a light unto the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but under but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven." So as sin comes out of the closet, the bride of Christ must not run and hide in hers. And that's the culture we're in right now. So we exist to show the contrast. So while we're certainly gracious and kind to sinners, we need our Savior. And we remind un- we need to remain unspotted from the world. Holiness and commitment to the Lord Jesus as Savior is important. Jesus Christ is our utmost priority. And yes, we need to reach the world, and that's obviously a mandate. We've been this summer; our church has been actively engaging. My prayer is: as we pray tonight, let's pray that all the activity of intentional evangelism and act and, and group activity will then translate into individual action in regard to personal um, 
intentional gospel outreach. So as we wind up the summer and get into school year and everybody gets busy, it's not time to hang up our intentional gospel outreach hat. Say, well, we'll wait till next year and go back and do church in the park and we'll go back and do this and this and this in the summer and we'll get out in the community. It is a great season, right? There's times to go fishing. It's a little easier than others, right? It's easier to go down and cast a line at the lake in the middle of summer than the middle of winter, right? In the middle of winter, you might have to go drill a hole and do a lot of work just to get it down there. But uh, And so there's seasons when it's easier to fish than others. So we should take advantage of the of the seasons but at the end of the day our job is to continuously individually go out and show the mystery of godliness but also the church right we can't stop we have to go forward and so uh so we remain unspotted from the world and and we're committed to the lord jesus christ because we're his bride we're supposed to be chaste so yes we need to reach the world but we can't do it in soiled garments so our garments need to need to remain pure our first priority is to truth and we stand upon the truth and the truth um, and in the truth, I should say, until Jesus returns for his church. So that leads me to the last point. I'll just hold point C till uh, not next time. Well, next time Jeff will be here next week because I'll be on the road. And so are you guys cool with stopping here? Because it's time. Time is up. It would take me a little bit more. I'd be way after to go go beyond that. So I'll mark it here, point C. Are there any comments, questions, considerations? I just I do think as we as we meditate on this and we see how the congregation also has a responsibility to be in, in essence Baptist separation, uh, as we call it from the old days. Baptists are noted for separation. I, I was I've talked to two people this week in our congregation that are uh, dealing with separate separate issues, separate 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 separatist issues. Yeah. And what I mean by that is this issue of godliness. Their con- their conversation, their godly conversation, has caused them, for whatever reason, to have to separate from different things. Uh, some of it's doctrine, like churches, pastors I'm talking to. and Like, yeah, brother, I, I encourage you. I mean, if you can't bear it and your conscience can't bear it, separate. I mean, that's what Baptists do. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. And I mean that in a good sense. You've got to keep your, your garment spotless. I'm, I'm like that in several areas uh, when it comes to politics. Uh, I appreciate a lot of politicians, and I'll talk to politicians privately, personally. But I do not. I do my best to keep politics out of the business of the church. Uh, I want to keep our garments spotless. I don't want to let that in. Uh, not that I'm against uh, fervent political activity. I'm happy for our members, especially, that want to be engaged as much as they want to be engaged in those things. But at the end of the day, my job is to lead the church, right? And I know that God's not going to save America through political action. He's going to save it through people getting saved. And then, of course, that will affect policies and procedures and political activity. But that's not my primary goal. You got you can't get the cart ahead of the horse, so to speak. you got to make sure that you... Uh, it's God, right? God bless America, as they said. Right. Amen. And so God gives us another peace. And this isn't our home. We're not making a Christian utopia here. Jesus is going to come back and take care of that. And we're coming with him. So... Uh, our job right now is to act as ambassadors. I was talking to another brother this this week about, you know, grasping um, the reality of the judgment in which we come, and and the concept that we are, we're really an army, right? So we're not. A, we're right now. We we don't think of ourselves like that. But if you go back and listen to some of the old hymns, you know, onward, Christian soldiers. You know, that wasn't just because they were full of you know vim and vigor. Uh, it was because they really understood there is a certain aspect of the church militant. 
And they'd also been a completely, Baptists in particular, been completely abused by perversions of the militant church. And so, um, you know, uh, it's important that we, we do keep our eye on the ball, that we maintain godliness. This is not the time for the church to be militant. The time for the church to be militant is in the second coming when we return with Christ. And we will be very militant. I mean, extremely militant at that point. And so when we understand the imminent return of Christ and then our coming with him at the second coming at seven years later, what that helps us realize is that we are ambassadors for Christ because we actually do carry the authority. Way more authority than people realize. They don't really... It's just like Goliath uh, stepping up to... He really didn't think David had any authority. I mean, he just looked at him, call him a twig. You know, what are you going to... You're going to like... You're like a needle. You're going to poke me in the hand here. You're such a little twerp. You know, I'm just going to crush you. My my concern is I'm going to... You know, you're so skinny. I might just... You might jab me here. You're such a little twerp, right? And so he had no idea of the weight that David was able to, to bring to that situation because he didn't know he didn't know God. And so, unlike Goliath, right, who's a picture of himself with the Antichrist, six toes and all that stuff, uh, and Jesus is, is the type of David. So all of that's true. But we are we're in a situation where we are like those soldiers in the trenches, like I was saying this morning. We are the ones that will bring judgment. Right? And so right now we're all kind of a little shy and we're all kind of bashful. We're all kind of, people are getting scared of the Antichrist and all the things that are coming and globalization and blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, guys, you won't be scared when you come back with Jesus. <laughs> I promise you that. <laughs> so. That's a, that's a good admonition for all of us. I, I, I lose sight of it too. And believing what the Bible says is such an important aspect of knowing what the Bible says. It's one thing to know it. It's another thing to believe it. And and we do need to do that. I, I appreciate you saying that, Sharon. Um, that's important. And uh, I... Because I, really, if we believe the Lord could return, it will affect the way we act. We act. I had a really, I was really encouraged by, by Pastor Rogers' uh, admonition last Wednesday, not just in the morning, but in the evening, morning and evening, which, you know, I know that intellectually, but it just, God spoke to me personally about that when he was preaching. I was like, you know, I need to do a better job in the evening. And uh, I'm all about in the morning getting meet with Jesus, but uh, it's a good time. You need to end it in the evening with Jesus, too. So that was a good word. So. Amen. So he preached to me. Yeah, is there any other comments or anything else? All right. Let me turn this off. Oops.